Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about political and moral corruption in Shakespeare's Vienna, which apparently includes numerous brothels, pirates who have somehow ended up in a landlocked country, and hang em high judges with the private scruples of Harvey Weinstein. This week, we're discussing Measure for Measure, a play written in 1603 on the problems of 2021. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 26, Ten Times Deranged. Most dangerous is that temptation that doth goad us on to sin in loving virtue. Never could the strumpet, with all her double vigor, art, and nature, once stir my temper. But this virtuous maid subdues me quite ever till now. When men were fond, I smiled and wondered how. James, would you care to provide us a plot summary for this wild and strange comedy? Measure for Measure opens with its ruling Duke Vincentio telling his advisors that he intends to take a leave of absence from the city and will appoint his upright and exacting deputy Angelo to rule in his stead believing Angelo will be a just ruler and will enforce Vienna's tough laws with energy and wisdom. Shortly thereafter, the play cuts to a Viennese suburb, where a brothel operated by Mistress Overdone and bartender and pimp Pompey Bum, where word arrives that Angelo is, in fact, cracking down on fornication and prostitution with vigor. Mon dieu! A young man named Claudio has been imprisoned and sentenced to death for knocking up his fiancée, Juliette, a crime described as, quote, groping for trouts in a peculiar river, end quote, before the marriage has been fully formalized with the paperwork. Pompey also announces that Angelo intends to tear down all houses of ill repute in Vienna suburbs, though not those in the city center, due to the lobbying of a prominent city leader. Claudio's friend Lucio decides to lobby on his pal's behalf and tracks down Claudio's sister Isabella, a novice nun, thinking that chaste, virginal woman might be able to break through to Angelo and secure clemency. Isabella does indeed beg Angelo for clemency. But Angelo, as it turns out, is far from being a God-fearing and virtuous man. He ardently lusts after Isabella, and after some half-hearted wrestling with temptation, offers her a straight-up proposition. Have sex with him, and he'll spare her brother. He doubles down on being a truly terrible person by reminding her that no one would believe her if she were to relate any of this, because he enjoys a reputation for moral rectitude. A despondent Isabella seeks out Claudio in prison and relays Angelo's offer to him. Claudio begs her to do it, arguing that saving his life will balance out any sin on her part. But Isabella refuses because she believes that doing so would damn them both to perdition. Meanwhile, Duke Vincentio reveals that he had no intention of leaving Vienna at all, and has instead decided to observe what happens in his city under Angelo's tough-on-crime administration, while disguised as a friar named Father Lodowick. After meeting Sister Isabella and a heartfelt conversation with Lucio on the nature of lawn mercy, he develops two ploys to foil Angelo. First, he suggests that Isabella accept Angelo's proposal under the condition that their assignation take place in total darkness. Then he arranges for Mariana, a woman to whom Angelo is engaged, but has never consummated the marriage, to take Isabella's place and have sex with Angelo. Second, after the deed is done and after Angelo reneges on his word to Isabella and demands the execution to go forward, the Duke arranges for the head of a recently deceased pirate who died in prison and resembles Claudio to be sent over to Angelo instead. 
Vincentio reveals himself as the Duke shortly thereafter, leading Isabella and Mariana to come forward and accuse Angelo of his misdeeds. Angelo denies this and claims that the Friar Lodowick has been slandering him, only for Vincentio to step away, come back in a monk's cowl, and reveal that Lodowick and the Duke are one and the same. The Duke orders Angelo's execution, but Mariana and Isabella, who still thinks her brother is dead, prevail upon the Duke to spare Angelo's life. Angelo, instead, is now officially married to Mariana. Claudio emerges and is reunited with Juliet. Lucio is forced to marry a prostitute with the alluring name of Kate Keepdown, whom he got pregnant and ran out on. And, somewhat inexplicably, the Duke proposes to Isabella, who does not directly reply. And then, well, the play ends without us ever knowing what Isabella's response to the Duke is going to be. So that's the story of Measure for Measure. And let me just lead off. I mean, I think, Will, we've had a lot of plays that are very sexually tinged and have a lot of sexual humor. I don't think we've had a play that is this frank and candid in its explicit discussions of sex. Would you agree with that? I would. This play seems to be almost entirely framed around the issue of sex in the public square in a way that I actually found to be surprisingly frank, to use your word, extremely forward. We're used to plenty of double entendres. We're used to even characters that are working at brothels. We're used to a sort of body style of humor from Shakespeare. But this play, which seems to have a message, in addition to having numerous laugh lines and some cringe lines for sure, it revolves around the issue of sex and society in a way that even the plays that are about love and marriage don't really seem to do. That was my reaction to it, honestly. And in that way, it's it's kind of something new, in my view, in terms of being a message play. Though what that message is seems rather complicated, and I think we should tease it out. Yeah, I th- this, this gets to, I think, sort of the central question about the play. And I guess I'll just, Will, I'll just frame my question pretty directly here, because this is an element that's a little bit confusing to me in that it seems to me like it's clear that Shakespeare is interested in the problems of sex and society very explicitly here, whereas I think in other plays we've seen this more framed in questions of like sort of social construction, Mm -hmm. marriage, contracts, you know, where it's more within the context of marriage and how marriage functions and what marriage represents in society and, like, kind mm-hmm. of how people get together. Mm-hmm. Here, he's more grappling with problems around sexual conduct, the regulation of sexual behavior outside of marriage, or both in and outside of marriage, but in particular outside of marriage. And that sort of manifests in a couple of different ways. And I think, to me... It feels like there's a lot of elements in here, but I'm not sure what the problem that he's specifically trying to get at is, right? Yeah, you've got, yeah. you know, you, you've got the problem of regulating people's sexual behavior, and that's kind of represented in the Claudio gets his fiance pregnant before they get married, you know, basically before the paperwork is signed, right? And mm-hmm. that kind of is against the letter of the law. There's this thing about what is the proper regulation of actual sexual behavior among consenting individuals, essentially. Mm-hmm. Then you've got this thing about sexual abuse on mm-hmm. the part of Angelo 
and what that looks like and how that redounds to both the woman who's being targeted in Isabella and what it says about the person himself. And then you also have this sort of more abstract stuff about how power plays out, who believes whom, mm-hmm. if power is itself corrupt. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm I, I'm not articulating this, I think, in particularly discreet or well-formulated questions, but I think that maybe gets at my degree of uncertainty about what the central problem is. D- did you have any right. reactions to that? So I think all of those things are true and can be folded into one overarching theme. And it's one that we've seen Shakespeare play with a little bit in Merchant of Venice, which is there's the sort of subject matter of this play, which is sex, the public square, the private sphere, how we should think about that. But the overarching question, I think, is really about the law and whether the right way to to rule a city or the right way to go about pursuing the good, to be super pretentious about it, is to focus on the law as a means of punishment and deterrence and being really strict in how you enforce the law, or going for mercy, essentially, and embracing a little bit more of a live-and-let-live attitude towards some of these offenses, which maybe don't quite cross the line into truly deviant behavior. And I, I think that's something that Shakespeare is showing us with some of the characters and situations he creates. Certainly in in 2021, it's really hard, whatever one's personal commitments and uh, you know religious beliefs and all of that might be around chastity, it's really hard for anyone to really make the comparison of somebody in Claudio's and Juliet's situation, mm-hmm. where people in a committed relationship are having a child basically in wedlock, but only technically outside of wedlock. It's really hard to compare that to the actually terrible, coercive villainy and hypocrisy of somebody like Angelo, right? And it's only compounded by the fact that Angelo is enforcing the laws and is cracking down on these pretty innocuous missteps that, if they're wrong at all, Shakespeare is sort of suggesting to us that it's a pretty light offense, if it is one. Whereas there's really heinous bad stuff going on behind closed doors, and perhaps we should be thinking about that. So there's the question of the different types of behavior that people are engaging in around sex, but I think maybe Mm -hmm. there's a more profound question about how strictly you want to adhere to the letter of the law, and whether you can really trust people that are extremely zealous in their pursuit of it, but sort of leave some of their humanity and grace behind. And that parallels some of the Merchant of Venice situation in the trial, where there's Shylock on the one hand and Portia on the other, and Portia sort of making the plea for mercy and grace, and Shylock is demanding his pound of flesh. And I, I see sort of a similar dynamic playing out here. That's my reaction to it, but you're right. It's pregnant, if you will, with many, many themes and issues. Yeah, I think Isabella here does make a very similar, a, a much shorter and pithier, but a similar argument to what Portia makes in The Merchant of Venice, where it's sort of a judge not lest you be judged sort of thing, right? Where she says, she says, how would you be if he, which is at the top of judgment, should but judge you as you are? Kind of getting at that idea that it's almost inherently hypocritical for 
someone who is not themselves morally spotless mm-hmm. to pass judgment on others for their own lapses, particularly in a case like this where, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, the problem with what Claudio does is almost like a technicality or reads like a technicality, right? It's the sort of thing that seems like it should be worked out through sort of social norms. I, I guess I this guess is, it reads so, to me as something yeah. that sort of it seems like it exists outside the actual bounds of law. Yeah, well, and it's... <laughs> There's a whole interesting debate in this play on intentions and the degree to which intentions versus acts matter. But as somebody who recently got married, but has also taken part and helped friends get married as a groomsman, officiant, that kind of thing, this is the equivalent of basically having two people that have done everything right, have the marriage license uh, signed and everything, and they ask their officiant, or they themselves drop it in a mailbox the next day after their wedding night. And because it's not technically registered with the local municipality yet and is in the mail, they've technically breached the letter of the law in a way, right? right. Like that's sort of what this feels like is a very specific, highly technical reading, which violates the entire spirit of the thing now of course we don't know what claudio and juliet were doing before all of this went down but it definitely seems absurd and many people in the universe of the play also seem to think it's a pretty bizarre approach to justice in the city which is interesting in and of itself and well i i would almost say will that what's more interesting to me about it is less the even particular situation that Claudio and Juliet find themselves in, and in particular that Claudio finds himself in, only in that the construction of the crime is so extreme that it feels like a bit of a straw man, honestly, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is unusual. I mean, I feel like we're not, I feel like we're not accustomed to seeing straw men in Shakespeare's plays, but where it gets a little bit, maybe not murkier exactly, but there's sort of a suggestion or where the, where the more interesting claim comes in, I think, mm. is in the claim that, and I think it's Lucio who really articulates this idea, mm-hmm. where basically he says, this kind of stuff is always going to happen. If you pursued every one of these crimes, then everyone would be in jail. Or I, I'm not, right. don't, don't take this as an exact quote. I'm definitely like paraphrasing and extending the, the claim. But, but so, the argument basically yeah. is this idea about the fact that this kind of stuff happens literally every day and to respond with this level of severity to it demands a, a sort of level of incomprehension of human activity or, yes. or like the reality yes. of human life and human social existence. I actually think this dialogue is critical to the play and the point you just mentioned. So um, we might as well read it. Lucio says, A little more lenity and lechery would do no harm in him. Something too crabbed that way, Friar. It is too general a vice, and severity must cure it. Yes, in good sooth, the vice is of a great kindred, it is well allied, but it is impossible to extirp it quite, Friar, till eating and drinking be put down. They say this Angelo was never made by man nor woman after this downright way of creation. Is it true, think you? How should he be made, then? Some report a sea maid spawned him. Some! That he was begot between two stockfish, but it is certain when he makes water, his urine is congealed ice. That I know to be true. And he's emotion generative. That is infallible. 
Uh, so to exactly to your point, he almost literally says, you might as well try and eliminate eating and drinking as sex between consenting adults in society. And there are boundaries within which that type of behavior can and should be tolerated, and then there's what falls outside of that. And he seems to admit things are a little loose in Vienna, maybe a little too loose, but the answer is not to go 100% in the other direction and try to crack down in ways that truly go against human nature. He's trying to recognize that uh, it's a little bit inhuman, which is why he's portraying Angelo as something that is spawned from spirits and mythological creatures rather than Mm -hmm. uh, hot red blood in his veins produced by sexual activity itself, you know? So there's sort of an interesting point there. And I think Lucio, who's kind of a comical character, ultimately gets to the heart of it faster than many of the other people in the play. There's a little bit of a sense here, or I feel like I detect a little bit of an ambivalence in the play about this because... Like, it's, it seems like there's some sort of compromise, right, whereby this stuff is supposed to be technically illegal and formally frowned upon, but also tolerated, right? Like, um, someone, I think, it's, I think it's the deputy, says, mm-hmm. talking about the closing down of the, of the brothels, says, come bring them away. If these be good people in a commonwealth that do nothing but use their abuses in common houses, I know no law, bring them away, which I read as suggesting that allowing prostitution or sort of turning a blind eye to it as a way of channeling negative Mm. sexual energy or sexual energy that otherwise doesn't have an outlet. Right. But there's also a sense that it's not like this is something that should be celebrated. It's just something that kind of needs to be, right? It's something that's going to happen and therefore there needs to be some kind of acceptable outlet to it or some kind of outlet to it that Mm -hmm. is at the very least not, not highly policed. Yes, yeah. I'm not... I don't think there's like a thesis or a central or like an answer that Shakespeare seems to be presenting, but it doesn't seem like it's neither quite as far as this stuff is all fine and like we should all be celebrating it. He's not sex positive in that way. No, no. I don't think. But he's also definitely not on the tut tut waving his finger being like, this is no. bad news and you're all going to hell. And, you know, he's not doing that either. Yeah, I think that's right. And it actually, it's actually rather interesting in light of contemporary debates, particularly around this very subject. And we'll get to the sexual coercion. Angelo is Harvey Weinstein character. But something that jumps out to me is there are people today, right, that are having this exact type of argument. And certainly in recent history, it's it's been very evident too, where there have been debates over regulation of pornography and prostitution, sex work, other types of sexual activity, homosexuality not too long ago, right? And there's arguments that are built around, do the laws aggressively enforced do more harm than good? And also, you know, have we, like people arguing about this, there's a struggle, right, between people that are much more laissez-faire and then people that want to outright outlaw or heavily regulate and heavily police certain types of, of sexual activity. And it's very rare to find the person that's in the middle these days who's sort of equivocating a bit and is saying, well... 
you know, we, we have to say that certain types of behavior are bad and we've got to do that to maintain norms in society. But at the same time, we shouldn't really be pursuing and making a federal case out of it. That style of equivocation has kind of gone out of fashion, except in moral condemnation of certain things like, you know, teen pregnancy or, or whatever. Right. But even Mm -hmm. then, like a lot of these problems have sort of receded based on how society has changed in recent years. Anyway, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that other than to say that the questions that this play raises are very much alive today, perhaps even more so these days, right? Because there are genuine debates over like the rise of pornography on the internet, right? Which is a pretty demonstrably, I think, bad effect on people. But there's debates about whether you should be going after those companies, right? Preventing credit card companies from processing payments for things like that, et cetera, et cetera, right? You can go down these rabbit holes. And I'm not talking about something that happened 30 or 40 years ago. This is like last week. And mm-hmm. I'm not wading in with a position on on any of that on this year podcast, where we're here to discuss the plays of William Shakespeare and not regale people with our political opinions. But I would just say that um, these questions are alive, and it's actually kind of compelling to see Shakespeare wrestle with the dynamics hundreds of years ago. Uh, At least it was to me. No, I I agree. And I think the same basic question is at play, right, in in the conversations that are happening today or that continue to happen today that you're talking about and what's happening in this play, which is this question of to what degree do norms of social structure play out as political questions, and to what degree are they— things that should really only exist in an apolitical or not, of course, it's political, but outside of like regulatory mm-hmm. restrictions. To what degree are these things that are just about social norms that are enforced through social censure and whatever the opposite of censure is, approbation, I guess? Yeah. And to what degree are they things that need to be further reinforced or not? By state coercion. Yeah, and, and in fact, I would just say that to put an even finer point on it, this is a huge debate among conservatives in America and Europe right now in particular, right? And there's a whole school of thought that's um, sort of rebuking liberalism, not in the contemporary sense, but the philosophical idea of liberalism, individualism. There's a whole group of people, right? Like, Patrick Deneen, who teaches at at Notre Dame, many others, who have sort of come out and said, well, we've gone too far in this world of individual license. We've eroded communities by not weighing in with explicit moral judgments on things like sex and allowing it to not be regulated at all has led us down a bad road. And then there are other people who are a little bit more libertarian-leaning on these consensual sexual issues and are sort of going in the other direction and saying like, look, just because you don't like something doesn't mean it should be outlawed. That can be twisted in all sorts of ways that are repressive. So you have these real debates over the question of liberty and public virtue and the degree to which the state should be the actor regulating that. Well, I I mean, I would say, Will, and and I think what I'm about to say also is going to bring us back to Angelo and Isabella, I don't think that's a conversation that exclusively is happening in conservative circles. Mm. You know, honestly, a lot of the energy of the Me Too movement and the various Mm -hmm. movements and regulations that have come out of that and preceded it and led to it are similarly about trying to figure out what the bounds are of regulating behavior, but from 
a liberal perspective, I, I would say. I, I mean, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's a little bit of a mirror image of that in that it's about talking about what is appropriate or acceptable for how men interact with women. Yeah, yeah. And I think that if we accept Lucio's formulation that this is something that's always going to happen and like men and women are always going to do this and this is the thing that's always going to exist between men and women, then, you know, then it's really kind of impossible to get away from the question in, in some form. And, and I mm-hmm. think that that, I would say that that raises, again, the specter of Angelo and Isabella mm. in that, I mean, the Angelo and Isabella scenario is some classic Harvey Weinstein stuff, right? Sexual and, and predation. I, and, you know, and I use... And like I, attempted I use, rape. Yeah, I use yeah. Harvey Weinstein as sort of an avatar for this kind of behavior more generally mm-hmm. of powerful man, woman who wants something or needs something from that person and... You know, and and is in a position of less power than the person that they are interacting with. And that person takes the opportunity to attempt to to coerce them into sex, essentially. Not just essentially, but quite actually and literally in this case. You know, I think that's a, a really astute point. I think Angelo is attempting this sexual blackmail. Who knows? He may go further in other settings, honestly, we fortunately don't have to run that experiment in the play and don't see him go even more extreme, though what he does is obviously bad uh, enough. But it is interesting to see how a lot of discussions of past behavior have been put into another light, I think justly so, clearly, in so many cases in our society. And in some ways, Angelo is so utterly monstrous that it underscores the point that these are the people to whom the law should absolutely apply with great force. But there's all sorts of other variations of this behavior. I mean, obviously, it's easy to talk about the straw man argument of the Claudio Juliet situation, because that's really hard to object to on the merits, I think, for basically anyone. It's harder to sort of construct, you know, well, it's a the sort of thing which I would put it well, it's the sort of thing that like at the most you could imagine a sort of conservative grandmother tut tutting under her breath. Right. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That is the the most extreme level of censure that I can imagine mustering about this situation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And on the other side of the coin, I think is interesting, right? Because Angela's behavior is clearly abhorrent in the context of the play. He's clearly a bad guy. Shakespeare has written him as a guy who is behaving terribly and has tyrannical and coercive and violent appetites and instincts. Not at the beginning in the way he's initially shown to be, but when he's in power and when he's interacting with Isabella in particular, really comes to the fore in a pretty intense and visceral way. I think what's interesting about that is there, you know, you could you could construct other gray areas where, you know, for somebody dating their boss, right, you know, like, which also raises ethical issues, and I don't mean to downplay that, but that's like also something that seems rather different than the straight up coercion and really vile, explicitly vile behavior of Angelo. But I also think that's something that would be very hard for Shakespeare to imagine. A lot of this is sort of the product of um, 
It's like people like Angelo have always existed and they're bad and deserve to be caught and punished. I think it would be harder for Shakespeare writing at his time to quite articulate the more reasonable non-straw man case of Angelo on the one side and Claudio and Juliet on the other, Mm -hmm. where one is just so clearly objectionable and one is basically so inoffensive as to not even really be an offense. And then there's kind of the gray area that people are litigating in our society now where, you know, I don't mean to suggest that they are gray per se. I'm just saying people are arguing about this and taking different positions Mm -hmm. on how far things should go and there's all sorts of cases and you can read about them and in your newspaper you don't need to hear about it from me but uh, but yeah i find that i find that fascinating these two poles and then how there's a whole bunch of other behavior that falls somewhere in the middle and there's a line at which it clearly is objectionable well before angelo and maybe less than totally acceptable on the Claudio Juliet side, but trying to draw that is a very difficult exercise, I think, for people in society precisely. And you're getting people with different views who are debating that pretty vociferously right now. Anyway, I feel right. like I'm going down a rabbit hole on this. So well, please, l- let pull me, me out of the rabbit hole. L- let me ask you about the Angelo and Isabella thing. What I'm struggling with it is this is clearly a problem that Shakespeare's interested in exploring. But is the problem here about sex explicitly, or is it about abuse of power, or is it about something else entirely? And what are we supposed to make of it? And I ask that because I think in particular, Will, because what we're used to seeing with Shakespeare is either an oppositionality you know, an almost sort of Aristotelian oppositionality, right? Where yeah. two philosophically justifiable ideas are opposed, mm-hmm. you know, and you're sort of exploring both of them by their opposition. Or we're used to seeing something that's more like, you know, a Richard II, where he's just going deep on the philosophy of a particular topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I would put Merchant of Venice also in that kind of oppositionality camp, right? Where right. on the one hand, you see, you know, you see all the downside of Shylock's perspective, but you also understand where Shylock is coming from. This portrayal is much more one-sided, right? I mean, I don't think there's any question of what Shakespeare's opinion about what Angela is doing to Isabella is. Mm-hmm. And there's just not a lot of room for interpretation. Right? I mean, no, I, right, I would say right. there, there really is no room for interpretation. Yes, Angela is a monster. So, Juliet and Claudio are okay. <laughs> you know? so, so what does that tell us? Or does it tell us anything useful? Does the question so, make any sense? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. Obviously, I've been stumbling around trying to figure out this exact issue. I mean, I I do think it's more about abuse of power. That's probably a very modern reading of it, though, in some sense, right? It's the coercion. It's the fact that he's literally extorting her in exchange for something that he ultimately reneges on anyway. So he's terrible by many different measures, if you will. But I would also, I think... I think what's interesting about it, though, is Isabella doesn't just see it as an abuse of power. She's also concerned about her own personal virtue being violated by this man, right? She clearly values her virginity and her chastity, right? Mm-hmm. Because she she resists not only doing it— I mean, she doesn't even want to do it even if Angela were to go through with sparing— her brother. And if she I can tells just, Claudio that. If I can read the sort of the pithiest representation of this, 
she's having the conversation with Claudio about Angelo's demand. Claudio is advocating for her to do it for his sake and says, I but to die and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot, this sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod, and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods, or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice, to be imprisoned in the viewless winds, and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world, or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and incertain thought imagine howling. Tis too horrible. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. Isabella responds, and shamed life, a hateful, mm. in brackets, thing. So, uh, anyway, yeah. I thought that just Yeah, was... well, here's my theory on this. And it's actually, it's a kind of a half-baked theory. But ro- roll with me for a second. I think that there's a reason why she does not respond verbally to the Duke's proposal at the end mm-hmm. of the play. You know, I would need to look at it again and think about it some more because I'm probably getting this wrong. But I think by not having her respond... Now, most times this play is performed. It's more or less assumed that she says yes. They don't have her say yes, but usually it's presented as a nonverbal assent to the proposal. But what I think is interesting about it is it's a choice to have her not say anything in response to it. And we Mm -hmm. know that Shakespeare is by no means opposed to tying up lots of loose ends through marriage in the last Mm -hmm. 20 or so lines of his plays where people are suddenly just marrying each other all over the place with little provocation uh, Mm -hmm. or rationale to it. So it's clearly a choice that she's not responding. To me, that strikes me, it's almost as if she's considering what she wants to do in some way and how much this question of virtue and chastity and abstinence and being a nun factors into her idea of virtue versus being married to the duke who deus ex machina has basically arrived as the good king or the good duke to solve everybody's problems and is clearly meant to be a good guy in the context of the play, right? Duke sex machina. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So he arrives and is clearly meant to be a good guy. And it's clear that his proposal is probably the route to good things in some ways or a set of good things. And I think by not having her respond, it's sort of leaving the question open a bit as to how she wants to pursue virtue. Now, I'm probably overthinking this, as I said, but that's one theory that I was sort of puzzling through while reading this one. What do you think about all of that? I I don't know if that makes sense or not, so you tell me. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yes, I think I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I mean, I think it... I guess I also think of it in terms of what are the demands of performance and the demands of what the audience wants, right? And so it, to me, it feels like a hedge by Shakespeare in that I think for Shakespeare, the best outcome artistically for him, for what he's doing this play is for Isabella to go back to her convent, you know, and resume her life as a nun. But the conventions of the genre, and this is considered a comedy or represented as a comedy in some way, demand 
marriage and a happy ending or a happy ending in the form of a marriage, right? That's sort of the convention yeah. of the genre here. Yeah. So I feel like having the proposal made, but not having her respond basically allows the reader or the audience member to read into it the ending that they want mm. without Shakespeare having to make a choice about how Isabella's story is going to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying, and I, I have some sympathy because I, I sense, and we'll we'll talk about this when we get to power rankings, but I sense that you were dissatisfied with the ending in that way. And I kind of agree that it's not telegraphed in a way that lends a ton of support to my interpretation of it or the way I'm framing it for our listeners. It's more of a series of assumptions and suppositions mm -hmm. on my part, which I think are reasonable and potentially compelling. But I, I like the way you frame it as a, as a hedge because he's sort of avoiding making a choice and following through. You know, the parallel that comes to mind of the way to end ambiguously without necessarily violating the structure of the story did you ever see the midnight series before sunrise i guess it's the before sunrise i have yes Linkley. i have yeah, yeah right so in the in the first one in the second one without going into the heavy spoiler territory i love these movies by the way they're they're fantastic ethan hawk and julie delpy your doppelganger will Ethan Hawke. Yes, my, my, my doppelganger, Ethan Hawke. Yeah, which I, I'm, I'll totally see if he's on Twitter so I can tweet at him and, and try and get some Bardfly's love. By the way, Ethan Hawke just has a new novel out, which is about an actor who's playing Hotspur in an off-Broadway production. So oh. uh, yeah, we got to get him on the pod is, is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Ethan, Ethan, call us, please. Come on. Uh, come, come talk on, to us, Ethan. But I guess what interests me about it, though, that series, right? The whole premise is strangers meet on a train, young American, young French woman traveling across Europe. They decide to get off in Vienna, in Vienna, James, in Vienna in the first movie. And uh, you didn't see this, Will, but I just did like a big galaxy brain sort <laughs> exactly. of hand gesture around my head. Exactly. This is this is perfect. This is perfect. So in the who knew of, that the Shakespeare the expanded that, universe included the Before Sunrise series from Richard Linklater? I'm, I'm telling you, man. And we'd have Richard on as well. We love your movies. Dazed and Confused sums up my high school experience pretty well, I would say. Anyway, point being, they ride in the train. They have like a a brief and passionate love affair for the span of 24 hours in Vienna and they decide they want to meet again in a year. They have to split up for a variety of reasons and they say goodbye at this train station and you just don't know if they meet again. Uh, June 16th, so uh, track nine, uh, six months from now at six o'clock at night. Dece December. December, yeah, now listen, it's a train ride for you. I gotta fly all the way over here and shit like that, all right? But I'm gonna be here. <laughs> okay, me too. All right. And we're not going to call, right? Or... No, it's no. depressing. Yeah, okay. All right. All right, your train's going to leave. Say goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Over. Later. That is actually a compelling and ambiguous way to end this. And then there's a parallel version of it in the second movie, which we won't go into because we don't we don't have that kind of time. But that's a way to end in a satisfyingly ambiguous way because you can debate that, you can think about that. And it's also structurally resonant because the whole play is about 
trying to treasure these fleeting moments of love and connection. And that resonates in life too, right? Where the point isn't so much necessarily whether they end up together or not, but trying to appreciate this moment that they had. And the difficulties of doing that are sort of what the later movies become preoccupied with mm-hmm. also to great effect. And they, they shoot the movies in intervals of whatever, 10 years or, or right. whatever it is now. But anyway, I guess the point is there's a way to do this sort of thing where you can have an ambiguous ending, but it has to be structurally resonant and thematically resonant with what you're trying to do. And Shakespeare doesn't quite put in the work, I think, for the ambiguous ending to play. Well, um, I think, Will, and this can this will be my final point on this topic. With regard to the ending, not to preempt too much the rankings, but I think one thing that's happening more broadly at the end of this play is to the point of that lack of oppositionality or the lack of like a real exploration and explication of an idea here, like as a result of the the much clearer moral valence of this play than we're used to in Shakespeare. I feel like at the end, there's no way to take it further thematically and he just has to find a way to cut it off. And it does feel like it gets cut off by the appearance of the Duke mm-hmm. who like resolves all the issues and doesn't take it to whatever the full pardon my saying so, measure of this story would right, be. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I think if he had written this and Isabella was the central character as opposed to the Duke, I actually think he could have ended up at a place where that final silence could have really worked, framing it more around Isabella's choices. I think Isabella feels a little bit instrumental to the plot in a way that makes that last moment feel unearned in some Mm -hmm. sense. But since we're on the topic of plot, I just wanted to give you a Hollywood corner moment to break down something that I was curious about. This plot hinges on two moments in the end game, setting up the climax and denouement, which is the bed switch and the head switch that the Duke performs to trick Angelo and bring about his downfall. Those plots and plot devices feel awfully artificial to me. I wanted to ask you, did they feel artificial to you? And if so, what's the point at which the straw that breaks the camel's back in movies and in plays and fiction in general, where you start saying, this is completely implausible and ridiculous? So, Will, you mean that you didn't believe it when the provost just happened to have a pirate randomly sitting in his cells who looked like Claudio, who we hadn't heard about for the entire duration of the play, and that pirate <laughs> just happened to be ready to be executed? I, that that surprised you for some reason? Well, look, you know, the, the pirate, who knows how he got inland? Who knows what exactly pirates do ranging around the Alps or whatever, you know, these things, these things happen. I can forgive a convenient and, uh, I think post-mortem beheading. I think he may have even died of fever or something. Oh, I, I forget the exact, the exact cause of death, but an ex post, uh, you know, a post-mortem beheading and they shave the head and they sort of make it claim that it, it looks like Claudio. I can kind of buy that, but there's no way, there is no way you can sell mm-hmm. me on the idea that Angelo can have sex with this completely different woman, even in the dark, who he happens to have been betrothed to previously, 
and that he thinks it's Isabella. Like, I'm not buying it. Well, I'll throw into this conversation, Will, also the fact that the Duke disguises himself as a friar, and apparently no one in Vienna, who we've seen interact with him as the Duke, realizes that he is the Duke just because he's put on a friar's clothes. And, like, the reveal at the end of the play is similarly, I think, implausible, where the Duke basically rides away, seems to go around the corner, throws on his habit, comes back out, and is now the friar, gets interrogated, then, like, sort of has the reveal. I thought that was similarly unlikely. Yeah, yeah, But to your question, so, look, I think I'm probably going to give you a more complicated answer than you're looking for, but that's why we do the podcast. So I, I did have a few thoughts about this. For starters, I think there are plenty of pieces of art that are transparently ridiculous or implausible, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, even in Shakespeare... We've seen plenty of things that are kind of implausible, but you roll with it. I think Mm -hmm. the signal example of that that we talked about, actually, when we talked about Romeo and Juliet, was the fact that you just have to accept the love at first sight component, right? Because if you don't accept that there's love at first sight, then none of the play makes any sense. Right. Similarly, like I recently, and I think I actually mentioned this in in a recommendation, right? I, I relatively recently read The Count of Monte Cristo, and there's like a decent portion of the book where Dumas is just clearly more worried about getting his characters into the places where he needs them to be than he's necessarily worried about the story logic mm. of how that happens. And like most notably, there's a scene where Dantes finally gets to the island of Monte Cristo, which is where the treasure is buried. But he's like he's with these pirates again, or smugglers in this case, who he came with. And he needs them to leave the island so that he can then go and find this treasure. And the way that he does this is he fakes falling down and like breaking a rib and then convinces them to just leave the island and leave them some food. <laughs> and he's just going to get better sitting on the island. They're going to come back for him later on. Which is like you read it and you're just like, come on, Duma. Like, you don't really expect me to believe this, do you? But it's okay. It, it doesn't... It doesn't really bother you. Or, or to use a more, an example with maybe some more contemporary relevance is like we watch a, a lot of historical movies have mm-hmm. to alter the timeline or change facts a little bit or even a lot, right? I mean, you know, I've probably mentioned the pod before, like my favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia condenses a lot of events. The Siege of Aqaba, which is a huge moment in the mm-hmm. movie, is almost entirely fictionalized. There's characters who are composited together it is in no way a exact faithful representation of the the revolt in the desert or the career of t.e lawrence in arabia yeah but i think in that case it's okay and we live with it one i mean yes one because we don't know the history but i think more importantly because we understand that if you're going to make a historical movie, there's no way you can make a movie that is completely historically accurate in terms of the way that things happen one thing after another. And even if it were possible to do that, we probably wouldn't want to watch that movie because it would be so boring, right? You know, for a movie to be effective dramatically, or any story really, I think, to be effective dramatically, but particularly for a movie like a two-hour-long form to be effective dramatically, you know, you have to alter things in order to make them work. On the flip side, I think there are definitely cases where 
story logic actually does become incredibly important and takes us out of a story, mm-hmm. you know, or things become too unlikely. I mean, I think one example, now this is an example that I think many people would disagree with me about, but, you know, I think of a movie like Get Out, which many people adore, but to me, like, I was completely taken out of the movie by the ending, which seemed totally dissonant from the rest of the movie and seemed like it made most of the movie not make sense. Mm. In a more extreme example, there's a movie like Tenet, which you just never know what's going on in the movie. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, he's sort of waving at this sciencey stuff about why things work, but you never really understand it. It doesn't really make any sense. And typical Nolan. you don't typical accept Chris it, Nolan. right? Well, uh, yeah, I was actually yeah. going to say one, one other movie that, that I came up with on the other side of where we do accept it is I think... The Dark Knight is a movie where right. if you actually start thinking about the plot machinations in the second act of The Dark Knight, it starts to unravel pretty quickly. Yes. You really can't think too hard about it or it's going to start yeah. to annoy you. The boat scene, the ferry scene doesn't really make any sense just right. as a practical matter. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so, certainly Inception and Tenet definitely fit into this rubric of kind of hand waving and you just got to go with it, you know, yeah. otherwise you're, you're going to drive yourself crazy. But to that point, like I would say in Inception it works and in Tenet it really doesn't work. Doesn't and I think break, yeah. There are various conversations about why that is. Anyway, so this has been a long-winded no, no, answer. Just, uh, to me, yeah. it all has to do with what the claims of the movie are and what thematically the movie is doing. And crucially, whether or not these plot elements feel like they are in service of a coherent whole, of a coherent thematic whole, or if they are dissonant to what the movie's doing. Right. So, like, for instance, to go with the example of Lawrence of Arabia... The fact that Robert Bolt in his screenplay and David Lean in his direction of the film have changed historical events, they have done that in service of their thematic and narrative and Mm -hmm. moral vision of T.E. Lawrence's life and what he represents and what he went through. Mm -hmm. And they add up in that film to a coherent unity and the things don't, you know, the things they have changed do not distract from that. Right. Similarly, to go to another movie we've talked about in the pod, Will, The Three Musketeers, my favorite (laughs) film, to go from the very high to the very low is completely absurd. Doesn't make any sense plot-wise, but it's not a movie that you go to if what you're looking for is a plot that makes perfect sense. Right, right, right. Like, if you're going to watch the 1993 Three Musketeers with Chris O'Donnell, Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, Tim Curry, and Oliver Platt, the messiness of it is part of the charm. That's part of the suspension of disbelief. No, exactly, exactly. It would be like complaining that all of the Bond henchmen that are shooting at James Bond are terrible marksmen, despite being employed by billionaire criminal masterminds who presumably are not just hiring idiots off the street who can't shoot straight. You know, nobody, nobody cares, though. But on the other hand, right, if Bond was just dispatching his villains with impunity without getting beaten up or nearly cut in half by a laser a la Goldfinger... It would also feel unearned and ridiculous. There's right. a certain allowances that you make because you don't care really about the bad guys that are sort of nameless and shooting at Bond. They just exist as part of the uh, set piece action atmosphere that you want yeah. where there's sort of peril and Bond gets to do Bond 
barred yeah. stuff and is cool on the screen. It would feel a lot less fun if everybody was a pushover in the entire Bond universe. Right. You need henchmen that are actually skilled, and then that makes you not mind so much the gang that can't shoot straight and the fact that James Bond never has to right. reload. Yeah. So to use a, a more production-oriented example, right, there's been this recent trend of movies that employ more colorblind casting. So like two examples of this relatively recently was there was the Mary Queen of Scots movie with Shirsi Ronan and Margot Robbie, and there was the recent Armando Iannucci adaptation of David Copperfield. Right. And same strategy, colorblind casting in both movies. And I remember I was totally with it, and it made sense to me in the Armando Iannucci movie, and it didn't make sense at all to me, and I was questioning it in the Mary Queen of Scots movie. Mm. And basically, the reason for that, I think, is because in the Armando Iannucci movie, it's like part of the aesthetic of the film, right? It's a... Mm -hmm. It is not making great claims to historical accuracy in other areas of its production, right? Mm. It is very clearly an interpretation of Dickens. It is not a self-serious historical drama that is trying to be super faithful in all ways to the literature, right? It is interested in a thematic coherence with Dickens, not necessarily with a slavish... 100% accurate representation of Dickens. Right, and it's presumably not trying to say things about race in Victorian Correct. England right. either, right? right, right. right? Like, it's well, just but, there because representation is important and because it doesn't really actually matter all that much. If somebody's a good actor, they can play... Uh, right. I don't know who it was cast at, but they can play David Copperfield, and it's not really a big deal. In the same way that you could do Julius Caesar, as has been done, with any number right. of excellent black yeah. actors, because race isn't really the well, but this is, issue. This was my where the like the divide was for me because the Mary Queen of Scots movie, similarly, it's like not really germane to the movie, but that movie mm. seems to be representing itself in a much more serious. This is a representation of the history that happened sort of right. way and therefore having something that is so clearly ahistorical is distracting so yeah all of which is to say that it to me it has to do with what the work of art is representing itself to be and how mm -hmm. those elements fit into it so to bring this back to measure for measure i think what's going on with this unlike with romeo and juliet where the love at first sight stuff is just part of the fabric of the play and the play literally doesn't make sense without it. I mean, it's sort of like the first thing you have to acquiesce to to get into mm -hmm. that play. Measure for Measure is presenting itself as a serious exploration of a real social problem. And so to me, it feels very dissonant to have these wildly convenient plot machinations that are in service of resolving very thorny, real social and political issues mm. when that feels to be at odds with what the play thematically and intellectually seems to be presenting itself as. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I think that this raises an important question as we wind our time down here. This play does feel really ambitious to me. In some interesting ways. I don't know that it fully succeeds, but we've gone from Hamlet recently, reading Hamlet, 
then Troilus and Cressida, and now this play, to a lesser extent, I guess we can throw Twelfth Night in there. But it does sort of feel like a change has been brewing in Shakespeare's work, where he's tackling these more complex thematic topics, where he's experimenting a bit more with what he wants to say and how he wants to say it. And I'm I'm sort of grappling with how I feel about this play, which is clearly the work of a sophisticated artist who is experimenting with different ideas and concepts and has some great lines and pieces in here, creates memorable characters, but it's not Hamlet. It doesn't rise to that level. But there does seem to be a change and a sort of level of sophistication and comfort with experimentation on Shakespeare's part in Measure for Measure. And I responded to that and kind of enjoyed it. But what did you think about it ultimately? And as part of that, I'd be curious to see where you think it stacks up overall in our power rankings. So I agree with you that it feels like basically with Hamlet, or maybe it's even just with after Henry V, that Shakespeare has taken a bit of a left turn in his works, right? Because I think before that, we had a number of madcappy comedies and we had the histories. And basically, Henry V is the last history that he's going to write until the very end of his career. And Hamlet, Hamlet is the first, and I guess Julius Caesar is a tragedy, but I feel like to me, Julius Caesar also falls a little bit into the history valence, even though it's not the history in the sense of his other history plays. With Hamlet, it seems like he's moving into a new form and is interested in, in moving into new forms and experimenting with new ideas and new approaches. Now, Hamlet, of course, is the greatest work of literature that ever needs to have been written and all those things we talked about when we talked about Hamlet. I put this a little bit more in opposition with Troilus and Cressida. And between the two of them, particularly when I think about both of them together, I thought Troilus and Cressida didn't completely work, but to me, Troilus and Cressida is a more interesting and more daring work mm. of art. And I say that because I do feel like Shakespeare leaves something on the table with this play. And that mm-hmm. goes to what I was saying about the ending and like the reappearance of the Duke. It feels like he's getting into these weighty themes and ideas, but then doesn't take them as far as they need to go to really Mm -hmm. make something really interesting and great, right? It seems like he's only willing to go so far with it. And that I thought was something that was really interesting and rewarding about Troilus and Cressida, which was that play is unpleasant and difficult and really dark and cynical. Mm. But part of what's interesting about it is that he's taking that to its breaking point. He's really, really messing with the form and with your sympathy as an audience member and like trying to understand what to make of it. This play, it seems much more straightforward in terms of one, it's pretty clear who the bad guy is and who the good girl is, I guess. You know, the the moral valence of the play is pretty clear. So that makes it more about exploring the social questions around it, which he starts to do and then just feels like he cuts it off. He doesn't bring it to a head. He doesn't really go deep on that. It has to end with the Duke reappearing and setting things right. And that felt like he was in a way, unlike in Troilus and Cressida, where he was kind of breaking the genre, in this one it seemed like he was being constrained again by the needs of the genre. Mm. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I actually agree with you in the sense that Troilus and Cressida, he goes for broke and is willing to alienate the audience with his decidedly unheroic depiction of war and the idea of honor and really sucking the wind out of anybody that's going to go to the playhouse for just a rollicking good time and patriotic history because Troilus and Cressida is not that. And I get what you're saying. This play, I struggle with this a bit because I actually find this play to be kind of surprisingly morally ambitious in a way that a lot of the other works that we've read have not quite been. There are plays that are ambitious about politics. There are plays that are ambitious about human psychology and emotion, uh, Hamlet being you know, chief among them. There are plays that are ambitious about history. This one really does feel like something slightly different to me. I group it with Troilus and Cressida because if that's commentary on war and honor and to a lesser extent love, this one is a commentary on corruption, vice, virtue, human sexuality, and the law. And I found it to be compelling. I think it's more compelling when we're talking about it, and I'm very uh, vainly trying to articulate why I found it to be interesting. I do think it's funny and has less fat to it than Troilus and Cressida, which is sort of how I'm juxtaposing it uh, in my mind. I think the challenge is we're going to have to do some caveats and uh, mea culpas in a mini-sode at some point in the future, because I'm starting to see the midsection of my rankings list here, and it's starting to sag with a few bad choices that I made a while ago. Uh, well, you and- know, Will, if you want to take this opportunity to take your mulligan and move King John to number one in your rankings... This is your opportunity. I refuse to uh, I refuse to dignify that with a response, James. But I suppose I'm going to put this. Ugh. Ah, man. Oh, this is a tough one. I'm going to put it below Love's Labor's Lost, but above Henry the Sixth, part one at my 14 spot. And who are you going to anoint MVP of this one? Will uh, Lucio Lucio is Ooh, consistently amusing. And he gets the comic subplot. He's forced to do the right thing because he got a girl in trouble and gets shotgun weddinged and handles it with surprising good humor, despite complaining about it excessively in the last few minutes of the play. And uh, he helps engineer Claudio's, albeit indirectly, he arranges uh, Claudio to be saved by setting the plot in motion to a certain degree. So I'm going to go with Lucio, the best friend character who's an absurd individual and gives the best articulation of why Angelo's corrupt and hypocritical reign cannot stand. Wow. What about Interesting. you? Okay. As I'm looking at my list here, I think I'm going to put it at my number 16 between as you like it and the merry wives of Windsor. Oh, interesting. And you know, that just has to do with when I look at my list here, Here's the thing. I could maybe find a way to argue that it should be higher than As You Like It. Nothing above As You Like It could I, for me, which, you know, the ones that are immediately above that are Henry IV Part Two, then Charles and Cressida, then Richard II, then Henry VI Part Two. You know, that we're starting to get into pretty good plays there. Mm. And 
this play, I think, ultimately I'm coming down on this play is a really interesting failure, basically. Yeah. And I think that this line between As You Like It, As You Like It's probably like my bottom most play that I think basically works. (laughs) Mm. So I I think Merry Wives of Windsor is a play that I, I think I enjoyed more than most people enjoy it, but like I would not say is a great play by any means. I think Mm -hmm. it's just fun. And this play, I think, is more interesting than that. So that's why this play is supplanting it at number 16. And interesting, you're by choosing Lucio, Will, you've, you've left me with a really tough MVP call here. Because my intention was to go with whichever of the Duke or Isabella you did not choose. Mm. But now I don't have that option because you've just, you've made maybe your first truly daring MVP choice here today uh, i don't know that that seems mildly insulting to my mvp list because looking at yours it is uh it is no more bold or less bold than mine but yes but i think <laughs> i think i'm gonna go with the duke it's hard isabella is a really good strong character i think i'm gonna give the edge to the duke only on the basis of his being i think really the fundamentally the protagonist of the play he is yeah no fair enough fair enough and then will before we wrap up do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week i do james i watched absolute power the other night which is a thriller that came out in 1997 directed and starring clint eastwood but also with gene hackman laura linney dennis haysbert aka the president on 24 And Scott Glenn, who's always been one of my favorite character actors and is fantastic in this film. And Ed Harris. I mean, this is a film with an all-star cast. Basically, without ruining the plot or anything, Eastwood is a very talented burglar and art and jewel thief. And he ends up witnessing a murder involving the president of the United States and the secret service of a woman whom the president is having an affair with and all sorts of hell breaks loose. But I really liked it because it brought me back to this period in the late eighties to late nineties where the economical, well-directed, well-written, well-acted adult R-rated thriller was something that was a regular fixture in movie theaters and it was something that you would want to go out and see and enjoy because it was well constructed and thoughtfully done and you get all of these great little performances well this uh, there almost deserves to be an off-genre minisode just dedicated to this kind of movie yes because there are a lot of them yes and it's so great and it's actually one of my favorite genres and part of that is just maybe the period at which I was watching these things, which is probably my parents putting these things on and me pretending to be asleep in the basement on their lap, on the couch or something while the movie was playing and getting to see some R-rated stuff uh, before I was, you know, even in, I was of a tender age, let me put it that way. But movies like Absolute Power are fantastic and are uh, of a piece with the genre. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's not quite as good as The Fugitive with Harrison Ford or some of the better Jack Ryan movies, the, the Hunt for Red October or Patriot Games, but it's certainly up there. I really enjoyed it. It's a really well done movie. And it's also one where you're like, you finish it and you're like, that was really well done. That was enjoyable. I would totally watch it again. 
I'm also, I don't need a sequel. I don't need a franchise <laughs> mm-hmm. built around Luther the Jewel Thief. I can just watch the movie, enjoy it for what it is, and go about the rest of my life without it being dominant on screens for all time. Give us the recommendation one more time. That is Absolute Power, directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, we'll be having a bracing conversation on the importance of couples counseling when we talk about Othello. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.